I was raised in church and wasn't necessarily by choice. My parents didn't give us a choice about going to church or not. If there was church, we were going. We went to Sunday school, we went to church, we went to Wednesday night service. I mean, we even went to business meetings. That's just how much church we went to when I was a kid. And because of this, I've always known the story of Jesus. In fact, I I can't remember a time when I didn't know the story of Jesus. And while I, I knew the story and I knew that it was important, it really didn't mean that much to me. And then there was a day at the Fort Gibson Free Will Baptist Church when everything changed. It was the day when it went from being a story that I know to where I actually knew the Savior and I knew the one who had loved me and had given his life for me. I can say with absolute certainty this morning that Jesus is not a a story I tell, but he is a person that I know and a person that I love. And with that in mind, I want you to know that I'm not here to tell you a story today. I'm here to do everything I can to introduce you to Jesus. I don't want to be upfront about that. Today, I'm going to do my dead level best to introduce everyone in here who does not know Jesus to Jesus. So that they can know Him and they can be changed by Him completely. I'm going to urge you to place your hope and your faith and your trust in Jesus. And I'm going to do this with confidence because I know that Jesus is real. And I know that once we meet Him, He changes us. And makes things different and better in our lives. So let's get started this morning. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 15. Should be on page 777 if you've got a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to read a lot of Scripture this morning because the whole story is important to what we're talking about. Mark 15 and verse 1, it says, And straightway, in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Pilate asked him again, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he released to them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them, that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, What will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. But the chief priest moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said again to them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And then Pilate said unto them, Why? What evil hath he done? And they cried out all the more exceedingly, crucify him. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head. And began to salute him. Hail! King of the Jews. 
And they smote him on the head with the reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees, worshipped him. When they had mocked him, they took the purple from him and put on his own clothes and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place called Golgotha, which being interpreted is the place of the skull. And they gave him a drink, wine mixed with myrrh, but he received it not. When they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon him, whatever man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. The superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on the right hand and the other on the left. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. They that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads, saying, O thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him also. When the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood by when they heard it said, behold, he calleth Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, let alone let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that, he so cried out and he gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The title of the message this morning is Why Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We praise you, Lord, for your greatness and your goodness. We praise you for your love and your kindness. We come this morning with a desire to know you better, a desire to know Jesus better. Fathers, we look at the story of what Jesus endured. It is a familiar story. And Lord, there is a danger in that, that we can lose really the wonder and the awe of what Jesus endured on our behalf. Today, we plead for your Holy Spirit to come to make the story new to us again today. For your Holy Spirit to come and make the Word living and active so that we can see Jesus risen and crying out to us to come and lay our burdens down at His feet. Father God, today in this time that we would lay aside the cares of this life and in this these few moments that we have, that our hearts and minds would be wholly focused upon You. Search us all and try us today and see if there's anything in our lives that's not as it should be. Lord, where there's wrong, convict us. Where there's sin, lead us to repentance. Where there is unbelief, build faith. 
lead us all to know Jesus better at the end of the service than we did when we came in. Fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. This is your time and your house and your people. Have your way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The story of Jesus' birth, life, and death and resurrection is one of the best known stories in history. It seems unlikely that this is the first time anyone in here has heard it. And while the story is well known, it is not well believed. Doubts about the veracity of the story of Jesus have existed since the days of apostles. It is likely that some in here have doubts. And at times, Christians have shamed people who have expressed doubts about Jesus. This, I believe, was wrong. Because people often have legitimate doubts. And when doubts are shamed, they become full-blown unbelief or even bitter anger. Rather than being shamed for their doubts, people who have doubts should be encouraged to be honest about their doubts because their doubts are real. Now that being said, if you have doubts just because you have doubts, and just because those doubts are real, that does not mean your doubts are true. In all of your questioning about faith, there should also be a question about your doubts. One of the questions that we should all ask about our doubts is, why? Why do I doubt? Now some doubts are legitimate. Some people truly cannot reconcile what Scripture says to be true with the way they understand the world to work. The reality is that's not always the case. Jesus said that sometimes people reject Him because they love darkness more than light. Now there are two primary ideas behind them loving darkness more than light. One is that some people love their sin more than they love Jesus. Now, for these people, whether Jesus is true or not is secondary to the pleasure they receive from their sin. The pleasure they receive, the the life that they want to live, that's primary. And anything that threatens that, like Jesus, for instance, is dismissed out of hand. Their doubts flow not from a legitimate doubt about Jesus, but because of a love of self and a love of their sin. Others choose self-sufficiency over salvation. For these people, the very notion that they need to be saved from something and cannot save themselves assaults their pride in such a way they cannot accept it. If, and it's a big if, there is something wrong in their lives, they can fix it all by themselves. They do not need anyone else to come along and tell them how to live or what to do. Anything that threatens that sense of self-sufficiency, I can do it myself, like Jesus is dismissed out of hand. Their doubts don't flow from problems with who Jesus is or what Jesus did. It just is a matter of their pride. The gospel, Jesus, assaults their pride. and They will not accept that. So the question I want you to think about before we start into the story of why Jesus is why do you doubt Jesus if you're a doubter? But it, why do you doubt? And, and if you're a doubter and you say, I just can't reconcile what the Bible says with the way I know the world to be true, then I'm going to ask you to do something for the rest of this service. I want to ask you to doubt your doubts. I want to ask you to put yourself in a position and say, what if Jesus is true? What if 
All of that the Bible says about who Jesus is and what He did, what if that's real? And if it is, what are you going to do in response to that? But I ask this kind of based upon the words of Jesus. Jesus said, My doctrine is not mine, but His that sent me. If any man will or wants to do His will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. And what he's saying is, anyone who wants to know whether or not he's real, they can know. They can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, but there is a condition. They must be willing to embrace him as true and live in light of that truth. But this must be a person who would say, I don't really believe in Jesus, but if I did, I would live for Jesus. So let me ask you, does that describe you in your doubts? If you knew Jesus was real, that He really died on the cross for your sins, really rose again, would you surrender your life to Jesus? Would you do what He wanted you to do? If so, Jesus says you can and you will know for sure about Him. And what we're going to do is we're going to take just a minute or two and we're going we're to call upon God to keep His Word and to do what He said he would do. That's what I'm going to pray. But as I pray, I want you to pray as well. But even if you have very real doubts about God, about Jesus, and about all of it, I want you to pray something like this. Oh God, show me whether Jesus is your son or not. And if you show me he is, I promise to accept him as my Savior and confess him as such before the world. Now I want you to really pray this. Not because you believe. But as an expression of your openness to the truth, whatever that truth may be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We know. We know that your word is true. We know that Jesus is real. But Father, many in here may not. And Lord, those that have doubts and that they have questions, you have promised through Jesus that if they were willing to do your will, that you absolutely would reveal yourself to them and make yourself known. Father, today keep your word. Today do as you have promised. Some in here today have legitimate doubts and questions and concerns. And as they look at what your word says and what Jesus has done, at why Jesus matters, use this time to reach out through your spirit And let them know I'm here. Let them see Jesus calling out to them to come and lay their burdens down and take His yoke upon them. Holy Spirit, make the Word living and active in everyone's life today that we would all leave here absolutely knowing that Jesus is Lord over our lives. Father, if there are some here today that doubt Because Jesus challenges their sin. Or Jesus challenges their pride. And they will not believe and they will not follow. Lord, you make them be honest with themselves. You make them at least be honest with themselves that the truth does not matter. That all that matters is their pride and their sin and themselves. That at least if they're going to reject Jesus, they would do it with an honest way. I just won't. Have your way in all things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now there are probably 
a lot of reasons and a lot of areas where people have doubts. Things like creation, the inspiration, the authority of Scripture, sexuality, morality, the church, name a few. And those are all real issues and there are solid answers to all of those, but we do not have time to discuss all of those today. The main issue, really, that we have to resolve is Jesus. If we get Jesus right, everything else will work its way out. If Jesus is wrong, nothing else really matters. So we've got to get Jesus right if we're going to get anything right. We must resolve, who is He? What did He do? Why is He important? And the story of Jesus' death and the resurrection is the crux of the issue. Because while everyone dies, Jesus' death was unique. And the uniqueness of His death tells us why Jesus is important. So there are three reasons Jesus' death is unique. The first is that Jesus died for me. He died for you. He died for us. But in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer two goats to God. One he would kill and then sprinkle its blood on the mercy seat that was in the the holiest place or the most holy place in the temple. The other goat would be taken outside the city. The priest would lay his hands upon the goat and he would confess the sins of the people. And this act symbolically imputed the sins onto the goat called the scapegoat. And it would be led in the wilderness where the sins of the people would be carried off by him. And all of this was done. The death of the animal, the carrying the animal off, was done because of the sins of the people. And these actions, it taught the people three truths. It taught them sin was serious. The bleeding... The killing, the gutting of the animal was a graphic demonstration of the seriousness of sin. Sin was not a minor thing. Sin was not something to be trifled with. Sin wasn't okay. Sin was destructive. It also taught that sin had consequences. The animal died because of sin. But it didn't die because of just some general idea of sin. And it didn't die because of just sin out there somewhere. If I were a Jewish man in that day, and I took my lamb or my goat up there, as it was gutted, as it was killed, I would look at that and I would know that was my fault. I caused that. And then it also showed that sin required a sacrifice. The act of bleeding, killing, and gutting an animal was not once and done. It was done year After year, year after year, an animal had to die because of their sins. This was the only way they could have their sin taken away. They couldn't just turn over a new leaf from that moment on. It was good if they did, but it wasn't enough. Something had to die. They couldn't just try harder to keep God's law. It was good if they did, but that wasn't enough. Something had to die. They couldn't just have some sort of moral reform. It was good if they did, but that wasn't enough. Something had to die. Nothing they did on their own was good enough to make up for their sin. Something had to die. And their sin was the cause of that. While this act was performed year after year, there was a problem. These sacrifices never really paid the penalty for sin. Hebrews 10 tells us that it is not possible... For the blood of bulls and goats to actually pay the debt human sin earns. 
So what the yearly sacrifice did was remind them of their sin. Every year, they took it up there and they were reminded that sin was serious. Every year, they took it up there and they were reminded that their sin had consequences. Every year, they were reminded that their sin required a sacrifice. But it also pointed to the fact a better sacrifice was needed to pay the debt, to pay the penalty their sins had earned. And there was a better sacrifice coming. And His name was Jesus. Jesus came to be the perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins and for the sins of the people. That's why John the Baptist would declare that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why Jesus on the cross would declare, it is finished. He had accomplished God's plan. He had taken care of all that needed to be done. He had paid that penalty. And that's what we see in verse 37 of our text. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and He gave up the ghost. When Jesus died, He did something no animal sacrifice could do. Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament sacrifices symbolized. Jesus took sin away once and for all. And Jesus' death, just like the death of the animals in the Old Testament, it teaches us three things. It teaches us sin is serious. Right? Everything we read in Mark 15 that Jesus endured graphically demonstrates the seriousness of sin. It is because of sin that all of that happened to Jesus. Sin is not a minor thing. Sin is not something to trifle with. Sin is not okay. Sin is destructive. Sin is serious. And if we can look at the cross and not see that, we aren't paying attention. Sin is serious, but sin also has consequences. See, Jesus died because of sin. But He didn't die because of a general idea of sin. And He didn't die for a sin that's out there somewhere. When we look at what Jesus endured before the cross and what Jesus endured on the cross, we should know that was our fault. I did that. You did that. What Jesus endured is my fault. And what Jesus endured is your fault. Sin has consequences. And then sin's sacrifice has been made. Jesus' death on the cross is good for all times. It is just as effective today as it was the moment He died on the cross. His death on the cross will never be done again. It is once and for all. His death on the cross will never lose its power. Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice for sins God will ever ask of us. But at the same time, make no mistake, Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice for sins God will accept. There is nothing that we can do to pay the penalty our sins have earned. We can turn over a new leaf. And that would be a good thing for many of us. But it's not enough. We must embrace Jesus. We can make moral reforms and that may be good and needed. But it's not enough. We must embrace Jesus. 
We can try harder to be a good person. And that's always a good idea. But that is not enough. We must embrace Jesus. We can even say, I'm going to be more religious. I'm going to come to church more often. I'm going to read my Bible more, pray more, give more. And that would be good. But it is not enough. We must embrace Jesus. Jesus did for us on the cross what we cannot do for ourselves. His sacrifice is the only sacrifice will ever be accepted. Jesus is unique because He died in our place. Jesus is also unique because He gives us access to God. In the Old Testament, there were basically two places of worship for the Israelites. One was the tabernacle in the wilderness, the time of Moses. The other was the temple, initially built during the time of King Solomon. And both of these areas were basically divided up into three places. There was a what you might call a common area. There was a, a holy place. And then there was either the most holy place or the holiest of all. The common area was where any Jewish believer could go. The holy place, that was the place where only the priests of God could go. And only during the course of their service. But beyond that, that holiest of all, that most holy place... That was where the ark of God was. That's where the mercy seat was. And that was a place that only one person in all of the world could go. And that was the high priest over Israel. And he could only go once a year. And only after he had made a sacrifice for his sins and also for the sins of others. Now if we were to to look at the temple, what we would see is we would see the the holy place, and then behind it there would be a veil. And it separated the holy place from the most holy place. You could not even look into there and see the ark. It was separated like that. And that separation was intentional. That separation was God's idea. It was a physical representation of the separation that exists between God and man because of sin. It was a constant reminder that sinful man cannot go into the presence of a holy God. And this separation is brought to a close at Jesus' death. Look at verse 38. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. It was torn in half. Top to the bottom. I think the reason it specifically mentions top to the bottom is to show that God had done it. It wasn't an accident, it wasn't frayed and worn and just happened to tear at that specific moment. No, this was an act of God declaring something had changed at Jesus' death. But what changed? What was different now that Jesus had died? Hebrews tells us, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter the holiest or the most holy place by the blood of Jesus By a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say, His flesh. To the original readers of the Hebrews book. This would have been an almost incomprehensible statement. To think that they could go into the holiest, into that most holy place. Not as a high priest, not once a year. 
But by invitation of God because of what Jesus had done. Jesus made it possible for all people, all believers, to go into that most holy place, to go into the place where God dwells, to enjoy His presence and His comfort and His goodness. Jesus, through His death, caused the curtain that separated God and man to be torn away. He gives us access to God. And we can go in there boldly, Scripture says. When we go to God as believers, we we don't go with fear and trembling. We don't go with a sense of inferiority. We don't go afraid. We don't go before God as a harsh master who's just looking for a reason to smite us. We go as His dearly loved children who are invited by Him to come to Him, to experience Him, to cast all of their cares upon Him. We don't have to hesitate because of past failures. We don't have to worry about the mistakes that we've made because Jesus has cleansed us from that. Jesus has taken all of that away. We don't have to wait till one special day of the year where we go into the presence of God. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, we're invited by God Himself to go to Him. Anytime we need God, We can talk to God. He's there. And every one of us can go. No matter where you are. No matter what time it is. Because of Jesus. We have constant access to God. Again, that is something that no one else could do. We don't have time to look. But in the Old Testament. People just rushing Into the most holy place. To the ark. Suffered. Consequences. A man once reached out his hand to touch the ark. As it rocked on a cart. And God smote him. God killed him for that. The fact that we can do what they only dreamed of doing. It's amazing. And there is nothing that you or I could have done. To make that possible. We are not able to make ourselves worthy to go into the presence of God. The only way we have access is through the blood of Jesus. Through what He did on the cross. So why Jesus? Because Jesus did for me what I cannot do for myself. Jesus died. For us taking the consequences of our sin. He, he paid the penalty that we deserved. And in doing so, He opened up a way for us to have access with God and have a relationship with God. We, again, we don't have time, but I wish we did. We can read over and over again in Scripture where it says things like, without Jesus, we don't have God. There is no way to God apart from Jesus. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. Jesus matters because He alone gives us access to God. Now we see an immediate example of Jesus doing what only He can do in our text. In verse 39, it says, When the centurion which stood over against Jesus saw that He so cried out and gave up the ghost, He said, Truly, This man was the Son of God. Seeing how Jesus died 
and seeing what happened as Jesus died, the Roman centurion confessed Christ as the Son of God. Man, don't get over how amazing this is. This is a pagan. He worships the gods of Rome. And he had just helped crucify Jesus. And yet seeing what Jesus endured and seeing what Jesus did, his mind is changed and he cries out. He confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. What Jesus did for this centurion, He can do for us. And He alone can do it. You and I, we cannot do any of these things ourselves. We are wholly, completely dependent on Jesus. But that does bring up a question. How can I know for sure that Jesus' death really did this? How, How do I know that His death paid the penalty for my sin. How do I know that Jesus really gives me access to God? Because the Romans crucified a lot of people. In the time that they ruled over the world, they they crucified Jews regularly. During the rule over Judea, thousands of Jews were crucified during the time of Christ. At least two were crucified on the day that Jesus was crucified. So how can we be sure that He's different? How can we be sure that His death wasn't just another Jewish guy that they killed? That's Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. Look at Mark 16. Verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came into the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in long white raiment. And they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. You see, Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified, He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid Him. But go your way. Tell His disciples and Peter that He goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see Him, as He said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were... Afraid. Jesus was dead. And then Jesus rose from the dead, just as He said He would. The resurrection of Jesus is the greatest proof that He died for our sins and not as a martyr for the cause. The reality is Jesus' death would have no significance whatsoever if it was not for His resurrection. His resurrection declares in a powerful way He is the Son of God, died for the sins of the world, secures our salvation, and gives us access to God. I have books in my office by men who were doubters of Christianity who set out to disprove Jesus. And by the end of their study, they were believers in Christ. Many a doubter 
has been critical of Christians who are not willing to question their beliefs. They say we don't question because we're afraid of what we might find out. I contend that many doubters are scared to question their doubts for the very same reasons. They might find out that Jesus is real. They might find out that Jesus died for their sins. And they might find out that He rose from the dead. And that leaves them in a terrible predicament. I focused on Jesus this morning. Because Jesus is the key to it all. If Jesus is not who Scripture says He is, if Jesus did not do what Scripture says He did, then Jesus has no significance whatsoever. If Jesus is who he, Scripture says He is, if Jesus did what Scripture says He did, then Jesus is of, of, of ultimate importance. The only thing Jesus cannot be is moderately important. So let me ask you this morning, who is Jesus to you? Is He a story you know or a Savior you love? Is He a guy who died or the Savior who died for you? Is He a religious figure or your Savior who gives you access to to God. Is Jesus just a dead guy? Or is He your Savior that rose from the dead? The difference in these answers is eternally significant. If Jesus is not your Savior, who you love, because He died for your sins, giving you access to God, and He rose from the dead, then I urge you this morning to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And let me be clear, I'm not urging you to try harder. I'm not urging you to be more moral. I'm not urging you to turn over a new leaf. I'm not urging you to be more religious. For none of those things will actually help. What I'm urging you to do is to turn to Jesus. Believing He died for your sins and rose from the dead. You have to believe this. In order to receive Jesus and all that He died to make possible. But believing it is more than believing there's a God out there somewhere. That's not saving faith. Believing Jesus is even more than believing there was a guy named Jesus that existed. That's not saving faith. It's more than even affirming certain things to be true. That's not saving faith. Believing Jesus involves the heart, the mind, and the will. The mind learns that Jesus died for you and says, Jesus died because my sin is serious. Jesus died as a part of the consequences for my sin. Jesus died in my place. The heart then wants what Jesus is offering. The heart says, I want Jesus who died for me. I want the salvation Jesus secured. I want to know God. Because of what Jesus has done. But then there is the will who has the final and lasting decision. It is possible for people to accept in the mind the truth of Jesus. For their hearts to long for the salvation that Jesus offers. 
and because of their will, actually to refuse to reach out and take hold of Jesus. To take hold of Jesus requires us to turn to Jesus. And turning to Jesus involves turning from sin. You cannot pursue Jesus and your sin at the same time. We have to turn from one to go after the other. Turning to Jesus, reaching out and taking hold of what He offers requires you to let go of your self-sufficiency. And that means you have to accept there are no good deeds you can do to earn your salvation. There is not enough you can do to make up for the wrong that you have done. To accept that Jesus' death on the cross is the only basis of your acceptance before God. Jesus and Jesus alone. You cannot cling to self-sufficiency and Jesus at the same time. You must let go of one to grab hold of the other. The decision to reach out and take hold of what Jesus offers is intentionally made. And it is a decision that you alone have to make. Your mother can't make it for you. Your spouse can't make it for you. Your grandparents can't make it for you. I can't make it for you. No one but you can reach out and take hold of Jesus for you. So I'm pleading with you today. Don't let what you don't understand about life and Scripture keep you from what you do understand about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Don't let your pride and your self-sufficiency keep you from experiencing all that Jesus offers you. Don't let the passing pleasures of sin keep you from the unsearchable riches of Christ. Save yourself this morning. Save your soul. Come to Jesus and be saved. For only Jesus can save you. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and, and to close your eyes at this time. And we want to have a time to respond. People to reach out and take hold. And if you're here today and you, you need the salvation that Jesus offers. And you're ready to surrender to Jesus as Savior and Lord. I want you, it's an act of faith. To reach your hand up this morning and raise it up as a way of saying, Jesus, I'm taking hold of your salvation. Reach up and grab hold of what Christ has for you today. Amen. In a few minutes, I'm going to pray. And if you raised your hand, I want you to cry out to Jesus in this time. I want you to cry out to Him to save you. If you still have doubts, you confess those doubts, but you tell Him, I want you anyway. I don't understand it all, but I want everything that you offer, everything that you have provided. Take advantage of this time this morning. Heavenly Father, we love You. 
You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, this morning, we need You. We need You to send Your Holy Spirit to bring the kind of conviction that conquers pride. The kind of conviction that shows Jesus is more beautiful than sin. The kind of conviction that Causes us to cry out, what must I do to be saved? Father, this opportunity we have today in this time, let it not be wasted. Let us not say we'll do it another day, we'll do it another time, but right now, let folks be crying out to you for salvation. And Lord, if there are some that are convicted that your spirit is dealing with and they are not surrendering, my prayers that you not let up. That you press on them harder and more as the days go by. Make them miserable, O oh God, until they turn to Christ for salvation. Let the weight of the Word and the weight of their sin feel like it's crushing them. Until they cry out to Jesus to take the burden, to take that load from them. Have your way, O oh God, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward.